0: The forest floor was soft with layers and layers of old leaves, those on the surface still almost recognizable as such from the previous fall, those deeper down little more than mulch. Deeper still, soil and mud, through which things crawled and ate and mated and died. There was no breeze, and yet the surface leaves shifted, pushing upward in a small mound, and then breaking apart as something forced through. Gray and gnarled, a hand fisted around the haft of a rusted knife. Welcome to the Novelization Realization Project, one of the only shows in cyberspace that purports to look at movie novelizations and the films that inspire them. Joining me on this uh, month's uh, exploration of the cinematic literary. Is my good friend and podcaster, producer, and student of the human condition, Jenny Josephson. Jenny, welcome to the program.
1: Hi, I'm so excited to be back.
0: This is pretty awesome. I, you know, after coming off Back to the Future, I don't know if this reaches quite the heights, but we're uh-huh. going to be talking about the 2012 Drew Goddard film, Cabin in the Woods. Now, Jenny, I know you picked this out, Jenny, so yep. obviously you had feelings toward this movie uh kind of going into it
1: yes so i uh should i tell you about those feelings right now is now an appropriate time to tell you about the feelings
0: expound away
1: okay so uh my entire writing and entertainment worldview has been shaped by joss whedon and his compatriots so let's just put that right out there okay um so and then obviously at the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm terrified by horror movies to the point where I don't acknowledge their existence.
0: <laughs> okay, I'm glad you feel the same way because, yeah, I, I avoided this film. Not specifically this film, but in general, I do not seek out horror unless right. there's something exceptional about it.
1: I Right, and so my husband loves horror movies and will watch them all the time. And he occasionally tries to get me to watch them. And I will watch the classics. But uh, he had, he was like, no, 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 you don't understand. You have to see Cabin in the Woods. So I think I saw it when it came out on cable. I, of course, loved it. Because it's Josh Sweden and Drew Goddard, and these guys know how to put a twist on a spin on a thing, as <laughs> evidenced—see, <clears throat> I have mean talk, try to talk like them—as evidenced by their phenomenal work. Uh, I don't know if Drew Goddard was on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but he was on Angel. Yeah, and he wrote—according
0: to his credits, he wrote both.
1: Yeah, okay, so— the two of them, together along with an amazing stable of other writers who have gone on to populate the sci-fi universe, are just two of my favorite writers. They have written some of the most classic episodes of television. Um, they have both gone on to do amazing things. Drew Goddard wrote The Martian, like he the not the book, the uh, the screenplay. And uh, he so I love these guys, and I loved the movie. I totally got where they were going um i don't know do you usually give like a summation of what the movie is about in this podcast or do we'll, you just we'll, we'll go
0: through it? the plot that serves as a good device okay. to kind of point out the differences between the book and the film
1: got it so uh the i watched this movie against my better judgment i watched it with my little eyes peek it through my fingers and of course i loved it. i absolutely adored it but uh do you want me to tell you how I feel about the book?
0: Well, well, let's let's get into yeah. it. So, so, how many times would you say you've seen the movie? Like, is this a movie that you love to kind of revisit? Because I have a friend who is like, anytime I bring this up, he's like, we should probably just watch it just to be safe.
1: Yeah. No, I um, I haven't watched it more than once. So I watched it when it first came out. I enjoyed it. There are some movies that like need to be watched multiple times to uh, either be understood, either you have to figure out why you like them or you don't, or or. Just watch them for the sheer joy of it. This was a movie that I got the first time. I loved and I probably don't need to see again, but I recognize it's genius and more movies should be like it.
0: Yeah, this is a movie that could have ended up being um, like a mediocre M. Night Shyamalan movie in lesser hands. Yes. Uh, but it has like this really great um, like almost like Tarantino meets Sam Raimi uh, all through the filter of uh, like Joss Whedon sharp dialogue and mm-hmm. it, it like I was shocked how much I liked it Because usually when someone tells me I'm gonna love a film like I build up this expectation and I'm then disappointed uh, Thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed the film. I just watched it for the first time uh, what Thursday night So it is it is still very fresh uh, in my mind um, in terms of obviously, um, I'm assuming you didn't read the novelization prior to preparing no. for the show. This you're, that's correct. <laughs> not something you sought out, okay? Right. Um, and so um, rewatching it again, did anything like it's only a three year old or four year old film? Did anything not hold up perhaps as well as you would remembered?
1: No, I think that like I think I was actually I took away more the prescience of the filmmakers, which is they got Chris Hemsworth at a great time. Really, anything I think about that movie can be tracked back to Chris Hemsworth uh, (laughs) or Joss Whedon. But they... it, It is a perfectly executed movie and tonally... Here's what's interesting about the movie. It tonally holds up and it tonally is correct in how it mocks conventions of both horror movies, teen movies, the way women are perceived in movies. The movie gets it entirely right, and has its satiric hat cocked (laughs) perfectly on its masterful little head.
0: As opposed to perhaps the book, as we'll get into, uh, written by Tim Leibn. Uh, I believe sure. that's how you pronounce his name. Sure, uh, it's his. First of all, I, I love on the book. It uh, you, you have to like fight to find his credit as even having written the novelization. Like in just it, like right at the top, it goes written by Joss Whedon and Drew Goddard, The Cabin in the Woods, and like a tiny little font on the bottom. I feel <laughs> so bad for, for little Tim Levin. Oh, he's so sad. I don't
1: not have to <laughs> extra writing.
0: Uh, but this is his only film novelization. You'll be very sad to hear, Jenny. Uh, he has written spinoffs for Aliens, Predator, Star Wars, and the Hellboy universe. He also wrote the novella Pay the Ghost, uh, which was turned into a, m- I'm going to say, mediocre Nick Cage movie in the context of that a mediocre Nick Cage movie is an objectively bad movie. Yeah. Uh, so uh, So certainly a not a, uh, not a stranger to writing things. Uh, so I'm not making any <laughs> critical right. judgment. Uh, so did you enjoy the experience of reading the book, Jenny?
1: I did not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> See, now I, I said before the show, this this shows that you have not written uh, read as many novelizations as perhaps someone who hosts a novelization podcast has, Correct. because I was able to get a, a decent amount of enjoyment out of it. Obviously, it is both uh, handicapped by the fact that it sticks very closely to the film. Uh, there is not, it didn't appear like there was a ton of source material uh, left on the cutting room floor that they were able to incorporate into this. You know Sty- why? Because it's a Cause super tight movie. damn
1: fine script. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but um, I, I, I think, uh, based on other novelizations that I have read, um, I think Levin does a pretty Okay, job of a lot of times when you have to deal with internalizations of characters uh, when you're de- when you when you're describing their thought processes and you can't set up things with just music and tone uh, within a movie that, that can be done exceedingly poorly and Levin is not exceedingly poor at doing this at least compared to other novelizations um he's aided by the fact that he's able to just um, uh, take a lot of the Whedon and di- uh, Goddard dialogue and just put that in verbatim. And that really helps a lot of the scenes. One of my particular favorite is with the, the Herald uh, with the, with the uh, speakerphone yes. scene that comes across, I think just about as funny in the book as it does in the movie. Um, and I will point out, I read the book first, so I was not constantly comparing it to the movie, mm-hmm. which I think may explain some of the different, like the, the difference of approach, I guess, or the difference of appreciation. And so, that's what it.
1: I'll give Tim Levin. Yes. You're right. As a piece of sample of writing, it is properly constructed, and that is that is saying something. Given many movie novelizations, yes. right? Like the sentences are clean and clear, <laughs> right? Uh, you're right. The shifting character perspective is done easily and simply. I'll give him that. It's it's not it's not execrable writing. Yes. There's a subtler execrable thing going on that I hate more than anything else in the world, and it has to do with the classic fault of movie novelizations, and this movie highlighted it so well. Here's what happened, in my humble opinion. So many of the characters in the movie uh, who appear on the other side of the wall or underneath the ground, the people who are in charge of this weird experiment, Mm -hmm. right, they are not good people.
0: Fundamentally, no.
1: Fundamentally, no. And they are meant to be like the banality of evil. And they're meant to be looked at as the moviegoer in the light of comedy. So they are purposefully, comedically banal evil. It's yeah, fine. Yeah, right? like the
0: bureaucracy of evil. The
1: bureaucracy of evil, right? And that is a classic target for comedy. And I totally get it. And by the way, Uh, I went and read the script for this movie because I was having such a hard time with the novelization and I (laughs) wanted to see actually the unfiltered source. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll get back to that in a second. But the problem with this novelization is that when you start to fill out characters who are only meant to be comedically banal and their words, like in a movie, their words and their faces have to fill in what a lot of text in a movie novelization is designed to do and my problem with it is that all of a sudden we're getting backstory on these banal evil characters and the backstory is sexist racist and awful and by filling it in you're taking away from the comedy.
0: Yeah, it, it, within the first, like, literally the first oh. couple lines, I have written down, like, uh, what is it? Citizen is sexist, oh. Hadley is racist, and... I like,
1: highlighted parts. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, it, it is, it, yeah, it, it is like, oh, I, I, okay, I'm not supposed to, not even sympathy for, because you don't really ever have sympathy in the movie for the characters, but it, it, it puts a bad taste in your mouth to get them started when there are legitimately funny, you know, things the, with later the, on.
1: Yeah, the writing of this book, this novelization here, starts on page seven. Like, there's a bunch of random pages. And then the writing starts on page seven. By page eight, in a movie that was written by Joss Whedon, like, feminist ally, okay, (laughs) you have a sentence that is not in the script. He'd met Hadley's wife briefly, and patently insane though she was, he not thought she was any higher on the scale than most women. But... All those kitchen drawers closed, what, to stop Hadley getting at food so he'd go to bed and screw her instead? Now, let's make a subtle distinction here. This is not what Tim Levin thinks, right? He's trying to get inside the mind of a character, and I guess I try to respect that attempt. But if on page 8 you're already into the sexist thinking of a banali evil man you're no longer in a comedy.
0: <laughs> yeah, you, you don't need to make it. Like, he's already hateable by what he is doing. The it, words
1: were enough. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. Right? <laughs> Wendy Lynn was one of the few women ever to make Siderson feel uncomfortable. No wonder he'd always wanted to get into her panties. Now, uh, if a character says that out loud... You can put an ironic spin on it. This is on page ten of the book.
0: That <laughs> we're on page we're seven. deep into the book at this point. Yeah, clearly. If,
1: if, if this is if this is the writing of the author inside someone's head on page ten, you're already into hating a character more than you should. Yeah, right? has,
0: you, you have to have the, like a, a turn in the movie because you you kind of have to not have any context for what they're doing and and that's kind of the joy of this movie is discovering what is going on what exactly is going on in the the weird world building that they kind of sneak around you in this and kind of by distracting you by like oh who are these douches that we're following around
1: is this movie about a bunch of assholes Like, (laughs) like it's that's not what the movie's about these people first of all the intent of the movie is to shroud these scientists in a day-to-day, work-a-day type of mystery. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to, like, you're supposed to look at their conversation and be like, eh, that's every other jerk that's ever existed in the history of work, right? But you're not supposed to think about it any further than that. And by taking the novelization and starting to delve into their psyches, you're doing a whole other movie.
0: Yeah, I would have preferred like just seeing more scenes from around the facility or the complex or whatever, and seeing again the 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 office minutia that goes on, like like a sad birthday, like open with the sad birthday party yes. that Lee, like Citizen walks through or something like that, uh, as opposed to just rampant sexist and racist thoughts.
1: Also, don't make Richard Jenkins and Bradley Whitford's characters characters that they've so carefully established as dry bureaucrat scientists mm-hmm. and turn them into overtly racist or sexist evil. The whole point is that these people don't think they're evil. Yeah, and, they're, and they're
0: just doing, their they're just they're having just, to do this job. Yeah.
1: And if you lay it on so thick in the beginning, first of all, me as a reader, as a lady, I'm kind of like, oh, now I have to do the work not to hate Tim Levin <laughs> because I hate these very sentences, right? Mm-hmm. I hate them objectively. I I recognize what he's trying to do, but somehow this is why I went and looked at the script. The Joss Whedon Drew Goddard script does none of this.
0: Yeah. Right? The, well, I and I will say it's a little off-putting, but it gets it, it certainly is off-putting. And yeah. especially coming at it from uh, just reading the novelization first and not having the movie to kind of compare it mm-hmm. to init- through the initial read through. It does like 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 I said, the first three notes that I have are citizen sexist, Hadley race, you know. And so yeah. it, it does like all of a sudden I, like I have to fight against these archetypes that I've built up already in my mind just through very simple dialogue. The benefit is that because they bounce in between uh, the the different scenes, as obviously as the movie does, it at least by introducing so many characters relatively quickly, I, you're 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 kind of constantly trying to fight like, all right, who's this person? What are they about? Obviously, the the everyone is a trope. Everyone is a you know, kind of a stereotype. So it doesn't take you too long to figure it out. But it it is it is kind of a weird misdirect for no reason.
1: Yeah, let me read you just because I happen to have the script here. Let me just read you after all of that garbage about this <laughs> and that and panties and women are patently insane and all this stuff. Let me read you the only thing that isn't dialogue in the same bunch of pages from the script.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Sorry. Interior break room morning. Steve Hadley and Richard Sitterson are workaday white-collar Joes, getting coffee and vending snacks as they chat. Hadley is blandly handsome, Sitterson boarding on nerdy, but they have a sweet rapport. That's a work. That's a sentence. Okay. Some dialogue. Hoisting files, and in Sidderson's case, a small white cooler, the kind that might carry organs, they exit into Interior Hall Continuous. It's an anonymous concrete maze. A few other workers pass by as the men talk. And they talk a little more. Wendy Lynn, comma, a nervous woman in a lab coat joins them. That's all you get of Wendy Lynn. Uh, Hadley points at him. Oh, no, you didn't. Making a big ha. That's it. The first three pages. That's all there is. He, they spill coffee. They go in a golf cart. Uh, loud music. Smash cut to title. That's it. And that's all it needed to be.
0: Yeah. The and especially reading, I, I kind of made some alternative casting based on reading the novelization. Um, yeah. And for uh, for Doctor Lynn, uh, I choose to you know give her the proper respect. Thank she you. went to medical school. Um, I pictured. Um, I think her name's Adrian uh, Palicki from yeah. Agents of Shield like she's described as like this 6 foot very tall like almost commanding I assumed at some point that she was the director of the facility like in camouflage yeah. or something because of the way she's portrayed as this no-nonsense, like, super tight. Like, they mentioned the tightness of her hair so many times <laughs> in the yeah, novelization. As a
1: as a character trait to say, this woman is uptight and should just get laid. Yeah, Like, <laughs> oh, God, like, you just start to feel this stuff seep in and you're thinking, is, is this guy really trying to get into the character or does he actually think this? And, and I don't actually think that anyone that Joss Whedon would hire would have that actual kind of sexist stuff. But boy, is the male gaze intentional or not showing up in here. Dang!
0: Yeah, and and so I guess that'll um, that'll kind of lead us. We've already kind of set up the beginning of uh, the plot. So if you're not familiar, first of all, I don't know why you're listening to this if you haven't seen the movie or read the novelization. Probably watch the movie if you're going to do one of the two. Uh, but uh, it goes from there, opening into this lab scene of this again, b- you know, banal conversation between coworkers getting ready to kind of start a work weekend, uh, and then it opens up into our other set of characters uh, where we meet uh, Dana Polk, who I believe is the only. Character where we know, or the only of the uh, above ground characters that we know their full name, I believe. Uh, I was looking around the book, I didn't see any last names, and IMDb did not have last names yeah. for any of the characters. Uh, played by Kristen Connolly, um, I thought not my precise casting again the way or at least the way she comes off she does a fine job in the film like taking nothing away from her and in fact I love um like the choice of her for her like she almost has like the the giant um Disney eyes yeah uh, to a certain level to kind of express that uh that level of innocence as she's playing the role of the virgin uh right. so, but in the novelization I pictured um Someone a little bit more, I guess, bohemian, or someone a little more hip, because they really play up the fact that she likes edgy rock, like the Foo Fighters. Like there was like they just looked up the first like (laughs) band ever. Computer,
1: give me names of progressive (laughs) rock bands that are a little more hard edged.
0: Yeah, and and then the, the
1: Foo Fighters.
0: Yeah, sure. Everyone considers them edgy um but uh, and then th- there's a couple other instances where she's like super critical in the book of curtain um and Jules' taste in music where yeah. I, I, they're essentially listening to nickel like i actually didn't enjoy her snobbishness uh at, at their like nickelback whatever music that they were I playing like nickelback
1: just fine. They're, yeah
0: they're they, listen they have a place in the world they sell millions of records
1: yeah. they, they
0: serve a role and that is to inspire mild enthusiasm or hatred either one right. yeah exactly they're canadian they're fine they mean no harm
1: pov like all right uh yeah or let's continue and then i will bring my final point about movie novelizations to bear later <laughs> but but uh, so
0: so we meet we meet our cast of characters we meet dana we meet kurt played by chris hemsworth who is the only person that only casting that i knew going into the novelization yeah. like i tried to isolate myself from it as much as i could he plays the stereotypical jock he is in a uh even though he's a full academic scholarship sociology major according to uh both the book and the uh the movie um and he is in a relationship with Jules, played by anna hutchinson uh who at first when i like i'm not familiar with anna hutchinson uh don't really know her body of work i almost thought she looked a little too old to play. I mean, everyone is obviously way old, a little bit yeah. older than college age, but then I looked it up and she's six years younger than um uh Kristen Connolly. Wow. So <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm totally off. But um they're uh, they're you know the stereotypical uh kind of college uh, hot and heavy relationship. We also meet Marty, who is the stereo very much the stereotypical stoner who has my favorite moments. In the oh, movie, yeah. when he makes sure that his door to his crappy Volvo is locked while the window is down, like it's just like a brilliant little bit of character building. Yep. And Holden, uh, played by Jesse Williams uh, in the film, and he is, he is dubbed the role of the scholar, which He's I don't,
1: really I don't think came,
0: ac- yeah, I don't think came across either in. The, I mean, there, there's a throwaway line like we, we use what we, we work with what we have. Right. Uh, we hear at the very end. But I, I always like that. I felt that one was dubious, especially when uh, Jules is a pre med student. I thought maybe she can. Yeah. Anyway.
1: Well, part of that I thought was like the the joke,
0: right? Sure, yeah, the the dumb blonde, like they play yeah. that up in the movie where they they put like mind-dumbing uh, stuff in her blonde hair dye and they they make a joke, "Oh, the dumb blonde." That's pretty awesome. Right. Uh, so they uh, they're going to go to Kurt's cousin's cabin who he may or may not have a cousin, uh, drive going on a road trip, driving out going to have this weekend at this cabin. It's going to be awesome. They drive out, they in the book they have a keg in the, uh, in the RV as they are driving out. Uh, and like Holden is kind of portrayed as a drunk, which I feel makes him Weird. very unsympathetic as a character. <laughs> um, and uh, and then there's this, w- the, in, in the book, it, or I'm sorry, in the movie, there is almost no setup for the fact that Dana and Holden kind of have feelings for each other at all, other than that they make out a little bit. In the book, they have, like, this very overt, like, their legs are touching. And they oh could feel God, the chemistry like, between them. Geez. These, it, like, it's so, like, there's no reason why they should, other than that they're in proximity to each other, like, feel, like, feel anything for each other but they're like ready to go at it like almost the second you know their furtive gazes they stole gazes across each other as oh, they rode like, in the rv
1: <laughs> we're getting back to my main point about novelizations here we just keep <sighs> building and building the case
0: and so then they get to a gas station which i was never clear it did they explain this they don't explain this uh, consistently in the novelization are they stopping just for gas or do they need directions or both eh. Who knows? I, they stop at this gas station. They meet this crazy... Or it's a super creepy gas station. In the book, it's almost like a... Like, it's a horror scene unto itself. It's portrayed in such an over-the-top uh, way in the novelization that there was no way they would have stopped there. Like, in yeah. the movie, it's just like a creepy redneck... Uh, gas station like everything's a little dilapidated there's this junk everywhere in the book they make it sound like it's super dark it like smells of death the second they pull up there is no reason you would ever stop there ever 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 ever, yeah. ever uh but they meet uh they end up meeting this crazy old guy who insults them and marty makes some snide jokes about being in the civil war and then uh they get some gas he spits tobacco at their 20 bill and they make their way up to the titular cabin in the woods. Um, from that point, it gets. They go swimming. They do typical, very, uh, very horror very movie, movie cliches. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, you know, there, um, there is several scenes in the novelization about Jules and Kurt having very noisy sex, um, right. Which again is is tastefully left out of um of the of the movie. Um, they end up playing truth dare or lecture in the novelization, which I did not understand why that would be fun for anyone. Yeah. Uh, Other than if you have a stoner friend, obviously. Uh, And then they uh, they're then. okay. so then it kind of goes back into the underground layer where everyone everything they're doing is being manipulated. Right. There's chemicals being fed to them to make them horny, to make them dumb. There's like subliminal suggestions to kind of control their behavior. And during the course of this, uh, they're getting progressively drunker. uh, And during the course of the truth or dare, the trap door to a cellar opens up. Mm-hmm. They go down to all sorts of mayhem, basically ensues from that point onward. They end up reading... Do you, Did this make... Okay, as a fan, obviously I realize everything is playing into horror cliches. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know Latin, why would you read the Latin in that? Like Again, it's more of a question of why in horror movies do they ever do that, right? Right. It, it, but again, as someone who doesn't have a ton of experience with the horror genre... I guess that bothered me a little bit more than it should.
1: Um, right. If you're looking for, like, reasonable reactions, then it's yeah, a faulty pre- – you know, there's yeah. a lot of faulty premise it, stuff it, going on. But it's
0: on. it's a very evil dead moment where they, they, uh, they, you know, have these evil incantation that raises the dead uh, against them. And these uh, super evil zombies are brought back up and start killing people. The first person killed is Jules uh, while they're having a Rompus in the forest. Right. Uh, th- which did you find in uh, the setup in the novelization? The death of Jules is so freaking grisly, yeah. and it's it's handled again. I, I would say probably with more. Um, I don't want to say discretion, but more stylistically, I guess. Yeah. In in the in the movie in the novelization, it's like fucking brutal. It is. Like, they, it's it's very clear that the zombies are trying to make Kurt suffer, like, forcing him to watch as they cut off her head, like, very... Like, and it, it takes forever. Like, her, her throat is gouged at first, and she's, like, bubbling up screams. Like, that I found... I don't know if that's the most effective part of the novelization for me, but I was genuine... Like, I had a genuine reaction to that, where I was like, holy crap, this is, like, way darker than uh, I was expecting from a novelization.
1: Yeah, again... Ugh. Here's the deal, okay? Here's the deal. This is a novelization that should not have been done.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I, I don't know what the, I, I guess what the market would be for that because the... I mean, I guess you're playing into the fact that uh, Joss Whedon has like the super fervent fan base, right? And that, oh, yes. it's it has his name on the front. So but maybe they're
1: also super smart people. This is
0: true. And like super, I don't want to say picky, but discerning, perhaps discerning. like the reason, you're, the reason you're a Joss Whedon fan is because you like super crackling dialogue and you like like smart takes on predictable you genres like things
1: from a certain point of view, yes. which is uh, uh, acknowledging the outsider people in the world and empowering them mm-hmm. ra- and, and making fun of the conventions of the world and of entertainment rather than leaning on into them. So <laughs> if you're making fun of horror movies and then you do the most grisly description of a horror scene instead of the sly cutaway, which, by the way, a sly cutaway is entirely possible in a novel.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. You could just totally like, yeah, just leave it uh, like hanging in suspense. And then all of a sudden the zombies throwing a head at somebody and you know yeah. that she's dead. And you don't need it. And well, and that was the thing to me is um, in doing the research for this. I mean, it's this is very much a reaction against kind of the horror, like the torture porn uh, uh, style, uh, you know, the saw uh, style of horror film that's come it's so in vogue. It. Yeah. And and so by like going being very explicit and grisly, it that's the only one that's really. Um, right. I would like say gross, but even still so, going into that kind of, again, betrays the intent. And again, I realize Tim had to fill up 300 pages like <laughs> he had to put something in there. But it I don't know if that was strictly necessary, even if it was like effective in provoking a reaction, at least to me.
1: Here's my suggestion to the people who do novelizations. There's mm-hmm. this pretty book. It's very nicely sized. I have a shocking suggestion. Why don't you just take the script? (laughs) The Joss Whedon, Drew Goddard excellently realized. I read that whole thing. Excellently realized, excellently done, excellent POV, and just put it in a book.
0: That would uh, make it much harder to do a podcast about
1: movie. Because we'd be just like, yeah, it was good.
0: I'm, yeah, I'm, right. yeah, it, it was just like the movie. <laughs> it read just awesome. like the movie. <laughs> the yeah. end. See you next it week, was folks.
1: faithful to the movie.
0: It would make it a lot easier to do the preparation for the show, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, like, I, I do think, uh, going into the existential crisis that is the movie novelization, I yes. do think there are interesting reasons why, especially um, the modern movie novelization maybe is more problematic, but in pre-DVD times, when you yeah. were hungry for any additional information, which is why I always feel like... Like, like the Back to the Future novelization could have been fascinating. Yes. Um, the um, the Star Wars one is really fascinating, especially like considering like you just see that movie and you're so hungry to get a, just a little more taste of that world and to have mm-hmm. a little bit something to build on. Very interesting. This again, th- what what fascinates me is the world in which this is happening and the in the reality of. Uh, and I guess we'll get to the like the whole conceit of this movie is that their uh, humanity is trying to appease these ancient gods and they have to sacrifice people in a very specific way in different locations. And as long as one of the sacrifices is successful, the gods stay asleep, uh, which is actually very explicitly played out in the in the novelization, which I guess is helpful. I don't know. Um, so, like, that that premise itself is super fascinating. So if you want to tease me with more of that, if you want to have, like, one chapter that's just from the perspective of the Japanese site right. where that's failing, like, they go into it a little bit more but not much more than in the movie – uh, and it has the best uh, freak out um, by Citizen uh, as yeah. the Japanese uh, scenario fails. But I would have loved to have gotten a little bit more detail into that world into or into like what kind of even though it's not doesn't serve the plot of the movie very well. I would have loved to have seen more um, like, like who is the organization? Who is the director that is running this? How far does this go? Right. Is this explicitly with the government? Is this purely a clandestine operation?
1: And what you're asking for <clears throat> the things you really want have been very successfully achieved in what the scholars who don't do this stuff anymore call called transmedia universe, right? Uh, okay. World Transmedia is a fancy way of saying building worlds across multiple platforms of storytelling. Mm-hmm. What you're asking for and what you really want has been super successfully done by every graphic novel that builds out a universe... Every Buffy the Vampire Slayer comic book that came out after the series ended by all the Star Wars, both the legends and now the new universes that they're building all around the new Star Wars. The sophistication of storytelling that you want (laughs) is being done in other formats, leaving the movie novelization As a sad little bastard that nobody (laughs) wants.
0: Oh, poor movie. Well, here's what I will say. I also don't... I'm not purely throwing... Uh, uh, Tim Levin under the uh, the wheels of the proverbial bus because I don't know the source material I mean clearly he had a copy of the script maybe he had an advanced copy of the movie when he was writing this but I'm imagining he didn't have a ton of latitude to do that world building right because they they, you know I'm sure they maybe thought uh, we can build this out maybe I don't know I highly doubt a sequel would ever happen but you know exactly what you were saying they want to leave their options open so they don't want to have him set up too much stuff that they can't deliver on or don't want to deliver on a
1: thankless job. I'll give the guy that. It's a thankless job because you always have to do them fast, mm-hmm. right? And things change, and you're having to fill out. You're you're basically having to spin uh, details, paragraphs, chunks out of nothing. Yeah. Right? I,
0: I, yeah. And you, you again, you have to fill banal detail to spell out scenes, to spell out scenarios that can be done in a matter of seconds. Right. Again, through score, through light, through simple lighting. You know, you can right. you can tell a lot of this stuff uh, and, cinematically, which which I do think. Why... is, But I do think that is a, like a, a very particular skill. Like there are novelizations. Uh, I would point to novelizations that have raised the game recently. We did Howard the Duck. And that was done by uh, a satirist who had written for The New Yorker and done a bunch of other um, uh, satirical uh, writings. And his take on that is brilliant. Like, the the story is still asinine. The movie is still wretched. But his playfulness with the material and realizing that he's kind of writing a joke um, really, like, makes that infinitely superior to the movie. So I – It is a supreme challenge, and many people are not up to it. But there are interesting takes on this. I think this was an eminently practical adept or uh, uh, novelization of Cabin in the Woods. But what? I'm sorry.
1: Workmanlike.
0: Yes, yes. Uh, It's some meat and potatoes business that uh, that Mr. Levin was uh, getting through. Um, Some of the uh, other differences, and uh, uh, I guess the rest of the plot of the movie is just real quick. Uh, pretty much everyone is killed. The one thing that I kind of loved in the novelization is when Kurt is doing the jump to, uh, to that is played up so comedically in the, like it comes across as a total shock. Like it's literally one sentence, but it's so stark and it's so blunt, uh, as as opposed to the movie, which uh, because it's a movie sets it up cinematically and sets it up uh, a little bit slower, it can't be as blunt as in the novelization. In the novelization, it's purely funny to me. Like I laughed out loud when I read Kurt rode and then his bike exploded into flames. Like that, <laughs> I don't know if it's right. intentionally funny. That is hilarious to me.
1: Right, and uh, I think that it serves actually the character of Kurt.
0: Yeah, uh, definitely, definitely. And well, and also I did kind of have a not a problem with it, but I thought it gives the the gives Marty and Dana a little bit too much read into the world to show like that weird energy grid. Yeah. Like like that, I thought was a little weird, um, setting that up because like clearly, I, although it does kind of inform why she then would immediately go to like the puppeteer, uh, right. uh, kind of line where like oh we're being watched like that makes it a little bit more explicit. I, I I'm not sure. I I did enjoy that choice in the novelization or maybe just dumb luck of writing it uh, that way. Like I said, um uh, some other and then um everyone dies basically. We think Marty dies, um turns out no which screws everything up uh they break into the facility marty accidentally finds the the entrance to the facility they get in there let out a bunch of monsters everyone dies uh it's revealed that dana has to kill marty to stop the world from being ended she's mauled by a werewolf before she can make a decision on that which is kind of amazing and then they sit and watch the world (laughs) end, which uh, and they uh kill sigourney weaver which is cool um, although I did kind of like her description, uh, in the novelization. Let me see if I, let me, hold on. I need some Foley work here. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me get that. Very good. Um,
0: the director, a mannequin, uh, given life, her beauty yeah. is suggestion rather than something she carried well. Like it maybe, maybe that's, uh, not the most, you know what I say?
1: Don't you talk about Sigourney <laughs> Weaver that way.
0: She is a beautiful woman and an amazing actress. Yeah. Not in that order. <laughs> um but no like like there were moments of like that put an image in my mind that like I okay I was like okay I want to see how they do this the the best thing I can say about the novelization is it made me really want to watch the movie and maybe that is like the successful um like a successful novelization is it wet's my appetite for seeing the movie I guess um it, again because not having if I had seen it I I I could see all the flaws in how they go about setting up a lot of the scenes. Um, But it really, like, it it proposed an interesting world. It kept very closely to the movie, which I maybe took some of the shock value out of it for me. Uh, But I don't think it was a complete failure. But only if you don't watch the movie first.
1: Yeah. So here's my thought. is like, I wish, just philosophically, that as someone whose husband writes scripts for a living and I've had to edit a lot of them and take them from either great to even better or maybe not on the mark to better, like like that's my job, right? Mm -hmm. And having read a lot of other people's screenplays that are just flat out not good, right? Over our many years in this quest, um, I would rather them just put this damn screenplay out so that people can actually see what a good screenplay looks like.
0: That does, and especially with someone who has the following of a Joss, like yeah. if you put just, like people are going to be super interested in that because it, you know, it shows you a little bit, uh, it, like it shows behind the curtain, which is what people really want to see. Not necessarily more detail about how much Holden was drinking, like yeah. during, <laughs> <And that's laughs> on the like, way up to the cabin.
1: And that's why these movie novelizations are. Pardon my French. Wait, what's the rating of this podcast?
0: Uh, it's whatever you want it to be.
1: All right, movie novelizations are the dry hump of the fiction universe. Okay. Oh. These are like, like everything you didn't want out of a hookup, because you didn't <laughs> want more chafing. You didn't need more poorly executed French kissing. You didn't need this you just wanted more of the good stuff and that's not what you get in almost any movie novelization
0: here here's what i will say the thankfully in this generally anytime physical intimacy is described yeah. in a novelization and i've experienced this uh, in godzilla in oh, i dear. think predator in both the godzilla novelization it's like literally physically disgusting to read it's like bad romance novel like right. you know thrusted on the mount of his horse oh, but geez. bullshit and this is at least like tastefully bland in most of its descriptions of inti- like physical intimacy. And yeah. I was I was so glad I didn't have to dry heave. Uh, yeah, while, unless while you're re-
1: Diana Gabaldon, don't do it. Yeah,
0: <laughs> just just yeah, just, just don't um, do it. Just just Pass. yeah, innuendo, innuendo. Yeah. Like uh, Going through some of the other differences, like seeing what works, what didn't, one of the interesting things was uh, the list of monsters that was listed in the novelization exceeds those, or, or there are a lot of mo- monsters listed in the movie novelization that we do not see in right. the film. Uh, there is, of course, the cracked-skinned lava people, mm-hmm. a dog-headed alligator, which I would have liked to have seen, Yeah, exploding shard babies, which I don't think means what it's written to mean. Yeah uh a fire-mouthed woman which okay generic let's leave that out uh a giant ramet. Uh, a man with screaming pipes in his chest all right oh streaming i'm sorry streaming, streaming. a minotaur again kind of a cliche don't necessarily need to see that scorpion stinger woman a screaming banshee which we kind of see in the japanese scenario so we don't really need to see it a three-headed child a uh toxic ghostly figure generic woman with snake pubic hairs um
1: well, that's up the you know. You know, that's day. that's
0: just a loss. I would have loved to have seen the Ray Harryhausen mock right. up of that one. And then finally, of course Medusa cl-
1: down south yeah.
0: <laughs> and Southern
1: finally, Medusa.
0: In in a similar vein, which one we were just robbed of seeing, a vagina toothed woman. <laughs>
1: Sure. Because there's not enough portrayal of vagina teeth women in today's media.
0: Exactly. I mean, where are we as a society if we cannot embrace the vagina teeth? We can't even figure
1: out what it is. Is that a walking vagina with teeth? Yeah, is it? Or is. I didn't. Well, her, the mind fails.
0: Yes, I mean, really, it's the it's the poverty of the imagination that fails to lift the written word to My our minds. My God,
1: I'm gonna be thinking about that for the rest of the day.
0: I'm just gonna uh, send you Are several messages teeth? with just Vaginas? that. Oh, now that's that's that, that's see, that, where
1: I went with that. That
0: seems more disturbing than scary.
1: That seems very hard to chew.
0: Yes, well, depends on the uh, woman, I, I guess.
1: so yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, again, to get back to the larger point, that's just. I don't know if Joss Whedon wrote all those mm-hmm. or whether Tim Leban did. But the His... fact that they weren't all in the movie is just purely a matter of budget.
0: Oh yeah, and, and there were that's exactly. I mean that's Check. what visually is one of the I don't know if it's like the funny parts are when the zombies are cleaning up afterwards and they walk in and this, this, there's just this blood caking the walls like Sam Raimi style and right. just zombies is munching on people. Uh, but visually, that's one of the more exciting scenes in the film where they just the elevators just spew out all of these monsters. This brings me, though. And again, I don't want to pull on the ridiculous thread of this movie. But if you're if you if you have a giant collection of monsters, why do you have a purge button? that seems to only release them into your facility in a way that is not contained at all. Yeah. Like, that. that is, I guess, the only—because uh, that, that's not a horror convention, right? It's not the horror convention to have—I mean, I guess it's this classic self-destruct button, right? It's just kind of a, a play on that trope. Sure, why not? But I would rather just have had a self-destruct button at that point than—don't uh, uh, get me wrong. It's a super fun scene. It's fun seeing all of these monsters come to life and realizing that all of these monsters exist in a larger world. Uh, and I love the line, like, instead of, uh, what is it? Uh, these are the things of nightmares. And it's like, no, these are the things that nightmares come from, or like, our right. b- nightmares are based on. Like, that, that is, like, really interesting and, and a really great way to approach it. I just, the purge button bothered me. I don't know why.
1: Yeah. Also, I am looking, I'm reading through the script itself, and I'm mm-hmm. not seeing anything about vagina teeth women. Uh, so I think that's a Tim Leban ad. A, that's
0: a Tim Leban monster that lives only Because I in think the mind. Joss
1: Whedon version of that would have been funnier.
0: Yes. Um, there. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, ways you can have fun. Maybe that comes from, c- because a lot of these clearly are based on uh tropes of horror and tropes right. of mythology so maybe that's like some weird sum- that seems like it could have been like a weird sumerian uh like right. ca- like you know uh right. a ziggurat scrawl or something like that right. so
1: watch out for women they have weird teeth
0: <laughs> but we don't know if their teeth are virgin- but anyway yeah. it, it gets anyway, very complicated gotta it, get off this. It, you lose something in the translation uh from the sumerian uh, uh women's yes. monsters um the the other thing, uh, just going through some of the other issues. Did you think the zombies in the movie looked like the Orukai from Lord of the Rings a little oh, bit? Oh,
1: interesting. Because yeah, yeah. I mean, I think like the horde looks like the Urukai too. If this you're is about like in the movie, the Warcraft movie that's coming up. So mm-hmm. like, I think an orc is an orc is an orc. But yeah, they had the zombies had a little bit of an orcish feel to them.
0: I did enjoy that they were wet zombies. I don't think wet zombies yeah. get enough. Uh, get enough love in but horror. But they are
1: my favorite Nickelback cover band.
0: Oh yeah, oh they're so good. I mean, they really capture the zeitgeist that Nickelback channels through their melodic <laughs> tunes. Um, then the uh, the other thing I, I was kind of thinking, and again, I believe this is a horror cliche, so I, I could be wrong. I kind of wanted some tie back in with Dana's uh fling with her professor somehow yeah, into it's just
1: that out there. Yeah, it's like, like a weird character
0: building trait. It 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 does set her up like oh Holden is her rebound guy later on, but it it doesn't I don't know there it didn't feel like either leave that out or have that tie back in it was Chekhov's yeah. um adulterous professor I guess yeah you know? and
1: also I think um um what's the best way to put it I think they literally invented that plot line so that Frit and Kranz could have that amazing line about Dana being uh. What was it? Dana uh, engaging in some of the ritualistic behavior of women of, you know, like <laughs> it was a good line. Let oh, no. Can...
0: Marty is a joy. Marty. Yeah. Both. Yeah. Uh, Fran, uh, Fran Kranz. Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. Is a joy throughout. Like in even in the novelization, I thoroughly enjoy. And that's because most of his dialogue is lifted verbatim into the novelization. Um, but like I had pictured um, this uh guy that I thought was forty-seven and turned out to be twenty-five, uh kind of stoner guy, and it like he almost hits that to yeah. a perfect T uh through that. I also like his coffee mug bowstaff uh bong that yeah. came in uh very handy later on. Um so overall, Jenny, would you recommend reading the novelization for Cabin in the Woods?
1: Why, Rich Hell no.
0: <laughs> uh I would say uh, as, as interesting as it is to whet your appetite for the movie, I would say the movie is leagues above where it is. There are some instances where, um, like I said, in, in, when you have an expanded universe, sometimes the novelization can be interesting. Like, I, like, if you're a diehard Star Trek fan, read the Star Trek novelizations. Those are kind of cool. They, they go into different details. You can geek out on that.
1: And there are a lot of cut plot lines. Yes. There's cut plot in some of these novelizations. But this is so
0: tight. You yep. you don't necessarily need that. And, and again, it makes many of the characters less sympathetic uh, that Holden is a borderline alcoholic. Citizen is a terrible person. We've already covered a lot of this, but it, it it frustrates me that this is one of the better in terms of the the actual writing, one of the better yeah. written ones. And I would like to see his maybe Mr. Levin uh, put his uh, put his pen to. Something not that it's not as clever. I mean, I think that's also the problem. Is that Cabin of the Woods is a very clever film, right? It would be yeah. like writing a novelization for a Tarantino film. Like it's it's going to be bad, even if it's the best, like mechanically written book. It will still be terrible because right. it's not Tarantino.
1: And I'll give you an example. So here's a Joss Whedon line that's straight from the script and into the book, and it was what I was talking about before about uh, why they set Dana up to have had an affair with her college professor. Mm-hmm. Marty says. Uh, we have patterns societally. The Miss Dana fell into one of the oldest patterns, and we are here to burn it away and pour ash into the grooves it has etched in her brain, cover the tracks, and set her feet on new ground. And that is like straight from the mouth and the patter. Uh, And the the Whedon-esque descendants, both Joss Whedon and the people that he had on Buffy and Angel who have gone on to populate the world. If that is not a forward-looking feminist ally line, (laughs) I don't know what is, right? And so uh, when a script is that good, that economical, like, I don't need more. You know how they say less is more, right? Yeah, more An hour and a half movie good. is
0: less than a 300 page book. Ergo yes. better. Yes. Um, the, now Jenny, I, I don't mean to spring this on you, but, uh, I believe I mentioned that we might do a rewrite delight, uh, at the end of this Ooh. episode. Okay. Are you, I, I will, I will go first. This is the, okay. uh, part of, we don't do this every week, but I thought this one is particularly fitting. This is where we imagine if we could choose any author to write the novelization for cabin in the woods, past, present or future. If you are so okay. bold, uh, what author would you like to see? Now, for me, uh, Cabin in the Woods is kind of a play, uh, obviously is a send up to various horror tropes. We've discussed this. So I thought who is an author that kind of has masterfully bended genres uh, in unexpected ways and toyed um, with kind of even the presentation of literature. So of course, I went with the author of House of Leaves, uh, Mark Danielewski, uh, who if you've never read House of Leaves, don't read it when it's dark outside because you will uh. be very scared. Um, but it's kind of this bizarre uh, book that that knows it's being written in a book. It's a story within a story within a story. And like even the way that the text is presented on the page is purposeful and helping to tell the story. And that's all I will say. It's kind of um, it's a very similar story to in in very basic terms to kind of The Shining uh, where it's like a, a haunted house kind of scary person uh, story. Uh, but uh, I highly recommend you read that. But I would love to see his, uh, uh, his kind of take on Cabin in the Woods. Again, someone who knows how to toy with genre, who knows how to toy with readers' expectations. That would be truly a treat.
1: That would be a great idea. My pick would be Elmore Leonard. Okay, The author of Get Shorty and Out of Sight, the the books that are then turned into the movies. And you want to know why? Because that guy writes spare, perfect, minimal, and hilarious prose. And that, if you were going to do a novelization of a spare, perfect, just spot on kind of movie that makes fun of tropes your novelization should match the tone.
0: Yeah, I almost yeah, I almost feel like it would be so much better served as a novella, which will never get published obviously. Right. You know, but like something that you can just read in 2 hours. Again, read it at almost the pace of the movie would yeah. be super satisfying and fun and you could you could have some fun with that. Yeah. All right, Jenny. Well, thank you so much uh, for sitting on this episode of the Novelization Realization Project. Uh, I believe this novel is fully realized now. Uh, let's,
1: unrealize it, it, yeah, we let's unrealize <laughs> it.
0: Let us wipe it from our brains and just watch Cabin in the Woods again. Uh, but is there anything you want to tell our fine listener, parenthesis, S, uh, about?
1: Well, I do a podcast called Tell It Anyway. Uh, which is a storytelling podcast where three people tell three different stories about one kind of topic. And the most recent one we did was After Hours, in which I talk with a friend of ours, Charlie Parrish, who's a former military man, a former army man, and um, a former Wall Street Journal reporter, Alan Zibbel, and me, myself, telling stories about what it was like to work the overnight shift a long time ago at a major news organization. So check it out at tellitanyway.com. I also am on daily tech news show, a couple other interesting things floating our way somewhat soon. And, uh, yeah.
0: And if you're a dog owner, uh, you also need to listen to tell it anyway because it helps you deal with um, people that are assholes uh, to your dog. (laughs) So uh, I found that very pertinent in this week's episode, Jenny. So that was excellent. Uh, So remember, uh, subscribe to the show if you don't already in iTunes, or go to NovelizationRealization.tumblr.com to check out our back catalog. Uh, I think we're up to a whole twelve episodes, so we have a full calendar year under our belts. Uh, Not consecutively, but uh, we're working toward it. We'll be back uh, next week. uh, I guess we'll reveal our episode for uh, April uh, on our little mini episode that we'll be doing in a little bit. That'll come out on the 15th. So I'm sorry. It'll come out on the 1st. I get the schedule so screwed up. We record these so far in advance, uh, but make sure you stay tuned for that. It's going to be fun. It might be a live episode uh, that I'm doing, so check that out, and until next time we meet, keep reading, everybody, just maybe not the works of Tim Levin. That's it for us. Bye now. Another big thank you to Jenny Josephson for being on the show. It was a fantastic time. Hope you, dear listener, enjoyed listening as well. You are a dear listener. It's what you do best. Also wanted to thank Stolen Dress Entertainment for distributing our podcast. If you want to check out their other stuff, and I highly recommend you do, check it out at StolenDress.com. I always recommend to get you started the Comedy on Vinyl podcast. And the latest episode features guest Wayne Fetterman. That's right, the legendary... Wayne Fetterman. I'm a huge fan. Super excited to check that out. You should as well.